0: Toledo. Imagine this. It's 1979. You're part of a three man elite special force unit from France who's just landed in Taif, the neighboring city of Mecca. The Grand Mosque is smoking remnants of several days of gunfire and grenades after a group of roughly 300 insurgents took over the harem, claiming that they had the Mahdi himself. You know only Muslims are allowed in the Grand Mosque, and for decades to come, people will argue whether you stayed in Taif to supervise the mission, or whether you became Muslim for the day and went to oversee it in person. You're currently at the very center of the Muslim world. What will be the fate of the insurgents who captured the Grand Mosque? The pressure to succeed has never been higher. From Toledo Society, I'm Professor Said Khan, and this is 1400OMG, your guide to what the hell happened in modern Muslim history. In this series, we look into the key events in the Muslim world over the last two centuries and dig deep into some of the root causes of the situation many find themselves in today. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series that looks into the siege that occurred in Mecca in 1979. You may have heard in the news recently that Saudi Arabia is looking to return to the Islam of pre-1979, or the riots outside the american embassy in pakistan around the same time or perhaps you heard of the 1981 attempted assassination of then pope john paul ii by a turkish fellow or perhaps you've heard of osama bin laden well what if i told you all of those things have a direct or indirect relationship to what happened in mecca in 1979. this two-part series aims to look into the event of 1979 And the ramifications for the four decades since. In episode one, we discuss the events leading up to the siege of the Grand Mosque, including the context of politics at the time and the motivations of the insurgents. In this episode, we'll explore the final days of the siege and the response of the Saudis right after the conflict. We will then seek to understand the implications that the siege has had for the several decades since it occurred. The Saudi police force their way into the Haram precinct only to be gunned down by the insurgents. It is important for the Saudis to get permission from the religious establishment to use weapons in the Haram. Why is that so important? On the one hand, the Saudis cannot lose control of the Haram as they are considered custodians of the holy mosques, an issue of very high prestige. An inability to protect the holy sites would destroy the legitimacy of the Saudi royal family. On the other hand they cannot simply bulldoze their way in and turn the precinct into a war zone that will also wreak havoc to their reputation and to their people but they need to use force and they need to use it quickly sheikh bin baz the most senior scholar in saudi arabia at the time issues a fatwa that allows for deadly force and gunfire to be used inside the grand mosque precinct this is critical to overcome apprehensions among security forces, as well as to allay concerns among Muslims worldwide. Pakistani commandos are also involved. Initially, those commanders are reluctant to shoot inside the Grand Mosque, as they are scared to be aiming in the direction of the Holy Kaaba. However, once the Saudi regime obtains a fatwa that sanctioned the use of ammunition inside the precinct, the Pakistani commandos are satisfied that they have the authorization to do so. Saudi forces attempt to deploy tear gas in the underground sections of the complex, but this proves to be a great failure. Eventually, the Saudis call upon the elite French force, Groupe Intervention Gendarme Nationale, the GIGN, to supervise the operation. The GIGN is reported to have converted to Islam for the duration of the mission. The GIGN drill holes in the floor near the Kaaba and drop gas into the bunkers beneath the Grand Mosque, which allows the Sothi soldiers to get into the bunkers and capture the insurgents. Official reports place the death toll at 255. This includes pilgrims, troops, and insurgents, with another 560 injured. Out of these, some 127 were insurgents, out of a total of three to 600. This suggests that more than half of the insurgents, in fact, escaped the siege altogether. The actual number of the death toll and casualty count is highly contested with U.S. and other independent sources placing it much higher than that of the Saudi estimate. Part of the reason for this is suggested that the Sodis still are trying to preserve their reputation by keeping the overall death count low. So what exactly happened to the insurgents? Al-Kahtani, the Mahdi, is killed inside the Grand Mosque. One account has him feeling so Mahdi-ish that he was picking up grenades and throwing them back at the Saudi soldiers. One grenade apparently tore his leg open. Juhayman, the mastermind, is captured, along with 67 other insurgents. King Khalid obtains a fatwa from the Council of Senior Scholars, declaring the insurgents guilty of seven different counts violation of the sanctity of the Grand Mosque and its precincts, violation of the sanctity of the month of Muharram, murder of fellow Muslims and others, disobedience of legitimate authorities, causing the suspension of prayer at the Grand Mosque, improper identification and designation of oneself as the Mahdi, and exploitation of the innocent for criminal acts. For all of these counts, Juhayman is convicted and as punishment is beheaded. Most of the other insurgents are also publicly beheaded across the kingdom in eight different cities for maximum visibility as well as to send a message to possible future dissent as it deterrents. Just a quick note regarding Toledo Society. 1400 OMG is one podcast in a network of podcasts called Toledo Society. To find out more, Visit Toledosociety.com. After the siege, King Khalid makes a rather Faustian deal with religious hardliners in Saudi Arabia. The move is counterintuitive, as it gives the ulama and religious conservatives more, not less, influence and power over Saudi society. If the regime had intended to send the message that religious zealotry had no place in Saudi Arabia, this deal does the exact opposite of that in the minds of many. Provisions of the deal include the banning of photographs of women from newspapers and television, the closure of movie theaters and music shops, increased religious studies in all school curricula with the cancellation of all non-Islamic history courses, Gender segregation in public spaces, including restaurants and cafes. Even Starbucks and McDonald's have different seating areas for men and women. The religious police, the Mutawa, have gained considerable power and authority, including the power to arrest anyone deemed to be in violation of religious sensitivity. The effects are still being felt from this deal. As recently as 2014, a female student died at a university because male paramedics were prevented from attending to her. The siege of Mecca ends on December the 4th, 1979. The Soviet Union invades Afghanistan exactly 20 days later to support a communist pro-Moscow regime. The United States is, of course, concerned about Soviet incursion into a region close to the Persian Gulf and its plentiful oil supplies. The United States is also uncertain whether a post-Shah Iran will now lean toward Moscow, which of course is an absurd assessment as Khomeini is virulently anti-Soviet because of its godless communism, as much as he is anti-West because of its impact on Iran during the Shah's reign. The Soviet invasion is a perfectly timed opportunity for the West to engage the Soviets in a proxy battle during the Cold War by framing the conflict as a struggle between the so-called godless Soviets and the so-called godly West. This allows Saudi Arabia and several other countries in the Muslim world, including Egypt, Jordan, Kuwait, all, mind you, U.S. allies, to create a new outlet for fundamentalists and potential domestic troublemakers. They are encouraged to conduct a religiously lawful endeavor in Afghanistan while their own societies are stabilized at a time of growing dissent and discontent. The goal? Outsourcing extremism to alleviate potential tensions within each country. Those motivated individuals flock to Afghanistan to fight a jihad, including a young Osama bin Laden from Saudi Arabia. The United States, through the CIA, facilitates the training and arming of these Afghan freedom fighters, known as the Mujahideen, in camps across Pakistan and Afghanistan. Pakistani and Afghani citizens also buy into this narrative. A key factor leading to this is the conspiracy theories about the siege of the Grand Mosque. The people believe that the Soviet Union is indeed seeking to harm the Muslim world. The Soviet Union, at the same time, also exploits the ideological climate by releasing 40,000 Muslim dissidents in their prisons and encouraging them to go to Afghanistan and participate in jihad against the US influence. The 9-11 attacks by Al-Qaeda and other terrorist attacks before and after, as well as the so-called global war on terror, can be said to indirectly relate to the circumstances and aftermath of the Grand Mosque seizure in 1979. That's all for this episode of 1400 OMG. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to let us know your thoughts. If you'd like to reach out to us, visit ToledoSociety.com.